0: Welcome to the WALK podcast of the Thompson Institute, a podcast for students and faculty on your walk across campus as a resource for your spiritual journey. I'm Aaron Badenhop, And I'm Jordan Browning. And we are your hosts and fellow Buckeyes. In episode two, we continue our conversation with Dr. James K.A. Smith, a philosophy professor at Calvin College, who recently visited OSU to speak about his book, You Are What You Love. In this episode, we discuss why the average person on campus should care about philosophy perhaps more than they do, and we ask more about Dr. Smith's thoughts on living life in a secular society. So you're a philosopher by trade. Yeah. And uh, at a campus like this, we know of a lot of students who come on campus who have had conversations with their parents along the lines of okay, make sure that you get a major that will help you to get a good job. Don't choose one of those majors that, you know, you're gonna be uh, stuck without a job after you graduate from college. And I, I wonder if um, philosophy fits into that latter category of one of a major that's not exactly the best for the job market uh, after you graduate. And, and so, therefore, I wonder if some students would say, is, is philosophy even worth it? Why, do, why does philosophy
1: matter in an academic institution like OSU? it's a it's a great question um a lot of it depends on what you think an education is for right so that and I get I get where those concern, I have kids in college uh one of whom is an art major and another is art history so obviously <laughs> I, I I'm I uh come face to face with this too um I, I guess I would want to start the conversation by reminding parents and students that an education isn't just about certification for a career, right? Like historically, education is, I mean, that's part of it, but really this kind of investment in a college education is about becoming a better human being, right? Like it's about sort of activating and growing and stretching all of the capacities for being human in their fullness. And um, in that sense, the history of education that gave us what are our contemporary universities was always much more focused on education as a formation of our human virtue right like achieving the excellencies of being able to think and articulate and and uh, uh, um, understand the achievements of human culture and so on so i'm an unapologetic advocate for the liberal arts as really just a curriculum in learning how to be human. So that would be part of, and and philosophy has actually always been at the hub of that. Philosophy is, in philosophy, you ask fundamental questions like, uh, what do I know? How do I know it? How do we discern truth, which seems like a very, very relevant Uh, capacity to be able to deal with today in our era of fake news and and competing uh, media circuses and so on. Uh, But it's also asking fundamental questions like what is real um, what is a human being? What is the good? What is beauty? So they are, I grant that it's a certain kind of luxury to get to be able to reflect on those things. But look, anybody sitting at Ohio state university has already been bequeathed the luxury. Do you know what I mean? Like it's quite a privilege. And so it's about seizing that opportunity to really just sort of stretch muscles of our humanity that we don't get to exercise otherwise. Um, And then finally, if I was going to make the kind of pragmatic pitch, what's really interesting is if you go out to Silicon Valley right now in the age of innovation and entrepreneurship, they're not looking for business majors. They're not looking for people who have been just sort of taught the techniques of an industry. They're actually looking for people who can think, who can create, who can um, stretch uh, um, categories who can write. And it turns out, in fact, Stanford University Press just published a great book about why the liberal arts are uh, the best preparation for innova- an age of innovation. And so um, there's there's numbers out there about how many Fortune 500 CEOs are actually philosophy alumni. And uh, what, what it does is it, it just gives you this kind of foundational education that enables you to think critically, expansively, creatively, uh, adapt innovate so that in an especially in an age where a sort of new economy where nobody's going to be doing the same thing their whole life it's the kind of education that actually sets you up to distinguish yourself it's also by the way uh, so i'm becoming a total shill for the philosophy major but at, at where i teach uh, at calvin college one of the things that we do is we encourage people to double major and so we get a lot of so yes absolutely go major in engineering or education or linguistics and then put the philosophy major alongside. And what that does is it's sort of, the engineer who has also majored in philosophy will absolutely ascend to the top of their firm Mm -hmm. because they have capacities to think about ethics, about responsibility, about uh, um, innovation in ways that are really distinguishing.
2: I really like that, because I was gonna ask, what would you say to the person listening to this right now who's connecting with this and saying yes, This sounds awesome. But at the same time I I need to make money after college and I need I need a job. But this I I kinda like what you just offered there. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't have
1: to be um, either or uh, it doesn't have to be either or and and maybe it's not maybe you can't even double major, maybe you just get to take a couple courses, but just don't waste a college education. Mm On just ticking off the boxes of pragmatism, yeah. because you will probably in some ways never have the chance again to just explore in these areas. And yeah. and I would, by the way, I would say the same thing for an art history course or an archaeology course or yeah. whatever it might be, is just like look for the spaces to kind of pluck these strings that you didn't know you had and tune them while you're here. And and then ideally, I mean, what we need is a society, I think this is why our democracy is in trouble, is uh, um, we have not really embraced lifelong learning. We haven't really embraced the vision of a continuing education. And I think hmm. one of the things that a philosophy uh, education does is it kind of hopefully births in you this hunger that you then continue to be a learner even when you're at work. Yeah.
2: No, that's cool.
0: Um, you've been interacting earlier with, uh, Charles Taylor, you mentioned mm-hmm. him earlier and, uh, you wrote a book, how not to be secular, which obviously is based on, uh, another book by Charles Taylor. And I wonder even the title of the book is provocative at a place like Ohio State, because I think there are a lot of people who are very content being secular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I'm wondering why you decided to write this book. Like what, what, um made you decide this was a book that needed to be written.
1: Yeah, and we should we should um, point out to listeners that the title is even a little trickier than it sure, sounds exactly, because yeah. it's how, parentheses, not to be secular. So in a way, the book is both how to be secular and how not to be secular. And that messiness is a big part of, of what I'm interested in. So um, the reason I wrote the book is um, I, I actually think this is something that we need more careful thinking about on the ground like so this isn't just something for philosophers to think about and and following taylor i just think it's undeniable that we live in a different world right like the i i I have it is a secular age it is a secular society modernity unleashed forces that change the world we live in so taylor's common way of phrasing he puts it as a question how is it that in 1500 Um, it was virtually impossible to not believe in God, right? Atheism was pretty much unimaginable in 1500 in the West versus in the year 2000, if you're living in the middle of Seattle or New York or San Francisco, it's virtually impossible to believe in God, right? There's those, the the imaginary, the conditions of believability have changed. So what what changed? Uh, What Taylor points out is a secular society is not, equivalent to an unbelieving society. As we just discussed, it's more like this uh, um, explosion of different ways of believing kind of thing. And the conditions of belief have changed. And so um, the book is written to help anyone kind of it's almost like an ethnography of our current climate like what what is the what does it mean to live in a secular society in the West? We should qualify that i mean he he's he's very honest that this is mostly a reality that characterizes North Atlantic societies, though as those as both capitalism technology democracy are exported globally, this becomes more and more common elsewhere um, and then part of it is about a council for those who do believe um, what what is it? Mean to do that responsibly and uh, um, with sort of intellectual integrity, given that we don't live in 1100. Do you know what I mm. mean? You can't, you can't just wish you lived in the age of Saint Thomas Aquinas again. Do you know what I mean? Like that world's not the world is. You can't turn back the clock, okay. and so even even believing is different because the water we swim in has changed. And I, I'm just trying to help people think that through a bit.
0: Well, uh, in your book, in one of your footnotes, Mm -hmm. you reference sociologist Peter Berger, and this footnote really stuck out to me. I wanted to ask you more about it. Berger says, "...there exists an international subculture composed of people with Western-type higher education, especially in the humanities and the social sciences, that is indeed secularized. This subculture is the principal carrier of progressive, enlightened beliefs and values." While its members are relatively thin on the ground, they are influential as they control the institutions that provide the official definitions of reality, notably the education system, the media of mass communication, and the higher reaches of the legal system. Now, I wanna ask you about this because I I think it's possible many on our campus hear this description of the place of of enlightened beliefs uh, in our world, in our culture, and would say, so what? This is exactly as it should be. Uh, how would you respond to that way of thinking?
1: Yeah. Um, and
2: maybe is there a way to like dumb down the quote a little bit? Yeah. See, so, yeah. For- so, okay. So to,
1: to, to, to um, translate the quote, yeah, sure. what, what Berger is suggesting is, his, his point is a little bit of a globalization point, which is the kinds of worldview that elite modern, secularized intellectuals and uh, cultural curators take for granted in Seattle or New York or LA, right? Just the sort of default secularized worldview. Um, He says, even though you go to other global regions that are intensely religious, say India, uh, when you meet the cultural elite in New Delhi, they They share the same thing, because they went to the London School of Economics or Oxford. you know so there's a there is a certain globalization of that elite secularized narrative mm-hmm. that's shared in common. what what I think Taylor rightly uh, challenges is he he sees the kind of default story there as what he calls a subtraction narrative. So, and what he means by that is the sort of Enlightened modernist narrative we like to tell ourselves is that, well, yeah, maybe in our past we were these kind of believing, religious, superstitious people given to myths and fairy tales and, and uh, uh, um, legends, but you know, uh, we got smart and the Enlightenment happened and we realized that that was all mythical and fabulous and fantastical and we sort of grew up. Uh, we we matured in our worldview, and now we don't need religion anymore. We don't need mystery. We don't need transcendence, uh, because we've arrived at this enlightened perspective where we realize that the natural world is all there is,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, uh, that's the kind of, Whiggish progressive story that's told about enlightenment, and and it's called a subtraction story because what is it saying is well we used to be human and natural and we added this kind of mythical layer and what we did is we just lopped off the religious and what was left was the kind of naturalized world in which we find ourselves. Taylor Uh, says that's not at all true (laughs) that in fact what happened is we absolutely told ourselves a different myth, a different story like we still, we are still animated by some capital N narrative that makes sense of who we are it might be a disenchanted one, it might be one that takes it Uh, uh, as if we flattened the universe and we're just enclosed within within what he calls an imminent frame. But he says, don't fool yourself into thinking that you don't believe that, right? Like that doesn't have a Hmm. sort of still a religious uh, standpoint about it insofar as that is a story we trust about the world. Now we have all kinds of reasons and evidences for believing that. But what Taylor would say is don't confuse the in philosophy we would say the epistemic status of that story the 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 way you know it still requires a great deal of trust which is a kind of faith so that we we didn't outgrow religious like commitment we just migrated it to this kind of naturalistic account mm-hmm. and and we are that account still remains haunted by transcendence you know there's not uh, um, so that's the default that we tend to tell ourselves. But what's interesting in in philosophy, and actually a lot of spheres of the academy, is how much that kind of confident, capital M, modernist, enlightenment narrative has been challenged. Uh, not And not by religious folks, but by all kinds of sectors who've said... You know this story about our kind of objectivity and rationality and being unbiased. You know the, the feminist comes along and says, "Well, this objective, rational knower looks a lot like a white German guy." You mm. know, <laughs> or, or post-colonial narratives have pointed out how much this vision of rationality is is uh, um, so regionally kind of indexed. So. Um, mm. There's, there's all kinds of ways that religious and Christian thinkers can actually find alliances with other kinds of thinkers who have been criticizing that sort of story.
0: Jordan, I want to uh, read a quote from the episode that we just listened to. Uh, Jamie Smith says, We didn't outgrow religious-like commitment. We just migrated it to a naturalistic account. The reason of all the things that he said that 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 stuck out to me is I think that represents well uh, a possible misconception that a lot of people experience living in our secular society today. I think it's easy to assume that uh, religious folks are sort of these ignorant, (laughs) um, you know, blind faith oriented people who uh, just haven't thrown off the myths of of the past, just haven't woken up to the reality of the material world that we live in now, and uh, I think it's really easy, therefore, for some non-religious people to assume that their perspective on uh, their their worldview that they've arrived at it from a very uh, evidence-based, pure reason, rational thinking uh, approach mm-hmm. to their worldview. And I, what I like about shed. what Smith says is, it all off. Th- yeah, they just shed off the myth, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what Smith argues is that we didn't just outgrow religious-like commitment, but that it was migrated to a naturalistic account. In other words, that we've just embraced a new myth or a new uh, quasi-religious narrative, and we've embraced that, uh, that narrative by faith. That there is some sort of trust in a narrative that we can't uh, rationally prove, uh, but we just believe in it anyway in a, in a secular Society and uh, and so the reason that sucks out to me is I think it it's helpful hopefully for the non-religious person to think a little bit more critically about their their worldview and maybe have a little bit more humility that maybe they're not so different from hmm. the religious person that they deem to be ignorant that that they maybe are doing something similar with the uh, worldview and and the myth that they embrace. Um, you know, with religious-like commitment that's not that dissimilar. Right.
2: Yeah, I think even um, really appreciated um, even hearing about, like, what he had to say about education, the value of a discipline-like philosophy today, how it still fits in. Um, I mean, I couldn't help, as we were interviewing him, I couldn't help But think through, like, man, if I could go back and do my bachelor's degree over again, like, I think I would do it differently. After having this conversation, Um, I think I just went through my GECs, like, what could I, what's the easiest route uh, to get quick, really good grades and get on with my major, rather than how is this time in uh, education, how how can I use this time to become a better person, to stretch myself, to be challenged, uh, to even know what it looks like to live well outside of college. That was just not at all where I was at. Um, and so I just, I yeah, really appreciated what he had to say. Um, yeah, it's so easy to just uh, check the boxes
0: to get the paper. Right. right? Like, that's right. just so common right? In, in terms of how students approach their education. Yeah. So... Well, join us in Episode 3 as we continue our conversation with Dr. Smith on living in a secular society.
2: Thanks so much for listening to The Walk of the Thompson Institute. The personal views presented by the scholars and professors on our podcast do not represent the views of their employer. For upcoming events and for more information, visit thethompsoninstitute.org, a program of crew at Ohio State.